This is a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Reading a slightly different translation than what you have in your books. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So as you certainly know by now, we uh, are devoting three weeks of, um, of our gatherings to correspond to the liturgical season of Advent. And so basically, if you're here on Tuesday nights for the next three weeks, we'll be listening to the Lord speaking to us. We'll be gathering around the readings that are prescribed um, in the lectionary for the Sunday prior. Um, before I talk about what Advent is and, and about our scripture tonight, um, I want to tell you this story. This, this is something that happened this afternoon um, in the car line. Lots of important things happened in the car line. I'm picking up my son in the afternoon. And um, it happened late in the day, and so I'm not going to tie this. I'm not going to actually show you how and why this, this fits with what I'm going to preach tonight. Um, but it does, and it also was fun, so I just want to tell you about it. Um, so my son Elias got in the car. The moment he, he hopped in, he was like, Dad, I have something really important I have to tell you. And I was like, okay. Uh, there's always something that's going on, right? He's always got something. It's, I'm going to hear something as soon as he gets in the car about his day. But it's not normally, the announcement is not normally that, like, this is serious. I need your attention, Dad. Um, so something really important happened today, and I was like, okay. Uh, I'm listening. Put on your seatbelt. And he was like, it has to do with something that happened with one of my friends. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's going to tell me about his friend that died or something. I don't know why that's where my, my mind went. He was like, it's this guy Christian. I hear lots of stories about Christian. I'm not a big fan of Christian <laughs> in general. Um, and so true to form, he was like, today, uh, Christian noticed in the morning when, when everyone else is saying the Pledge of Allegiance that I wasn't saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And so later on, he asked me why I wasn't saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and I explained to him how you taught me I shouldn't say the Pledge of Allegiance, and why. And he said that you shouldn't be the director of the Wesley Foundation. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's, like, they start young. <laughs> Way younger than I thought. Like, not the first time I've heard that for similar reasons. But I do think that's a record for like the youngest person that's ever just decided that guy doesn't need to be in that job if he's saying that kind of crap. <laughs> and so we talked a little bit more about that. Um, 
And apparently this conversation with Christian then proceeded on to uh, him, him kind of serve as, as the last sort of zinger at, at Elias. Um, he was like, also, because you don't believe in Santa Claus, you're not going to get any presents at Christmas. Because apparently Elias has also shared, which we told him not to. <laughs> that in our house we don't do the Santa Claus thing. Um, so there you go, there's a story. Um, and I'll leave you to, to tie it in with what I'm going to preach on tonight, um, as you wish. So the season of Advent, if you're at all awake to the scripture that we just read, um, the season of Advent, it should be evident to you, is meant to be unnerving and disruptive. It's a four-week season, and it always begins, the first week of Advent always starts with a vision not of cuddly Jesus in the manger, but of apocalyptic Jesus, of, of the apocalypse Jesus. Our attention, the very first week of Advent, is directed not to Jesus' first coming, but to his final coming. And what is said of this latter arrival of the Son of Man, what our readings say about him, could just as easily be said of the experience of death. So it's this mixture of absolute certainty and, and very intense uncertainty, right? You're going to die. That you are going to experience death at some point is, is a fact. Death is coming for you, and there's no getting away from it. Um, and yet on the other hand, certain as you are that it's coming, there's no way to know, usually, when or how your death is going to come. So there's something intrinsically grim about the description of the second coming of the Son of Man that's built into the, the thing that's constantly reiterated and, and, and emphasized in readings like this one. That he is coming is, is sure. And that we do not know our absolute uncertainty about when his coming will occur. That could just as easily be said of the experience of death. Our gospel reading tonight concluded at an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come. Or in the version that I read just a second ago, he's coming at a time you don't think he will. At a time you don't think he's coming, that's when he's going to be here. And if that weren't ominous enough, prior to that remark, Jesus has already described his coming as being just like the arrival of the flood in the days of Noah. The arrival of a force that annihilated everyone and everything that was not in the ark. And this reading is just one of several, of several similar um, parables and illustrations that happen in and around Matthew chapter 24. There's a, a smattering of passages, of teachings like this that Jesus offers, all of which emphasize essentially the same thing. Jesus is coming, you don't know when, so you had better be awake or alert. You better be prepared. Because the, that he is coming is sure, but that you do not know when he is coming is equally sure. But somewhat vexingly, Jesus does not, in this part of Matthew chapter 24, or anywhere else in the chapter, 
Nowhere in the immediate in these immediate verses does Jesus specify just what it is we're supposed to do to be wakeful. He doesn't spell out for you what that alertness or wakefulness consists of. In other words, these readings at the beginning of Advent are not the kind of readings that make it immediately apparent to us what we're supposed to do. There's not a neat list of actions that we are meant to come away from these readings with. Instead, if we receive these words rightly, we'll be filled with something that I think could be rightly named a holy dread. A holy dread. It is dread at the realization that so much we take for granted and accept as normal and as acceptable is not acceptable and is not normal and is coming to an end. It's dreadful in the sense that our lives are entangled in ways we don't already know how to disentangle them from all the things that Jesus is coming to wash away. It's a holy dread. It's holy in the sense that visions like the ones we receive in readings such as these inspire urgency in us to become somehow set apart for the ruinous fate toward which the world is headed when it is invaded once and for all by the advent of Christ. This holy dread is it's a beginning rather than a conclusion. It's an invitation into a process of asking questions that are not easily or immediately resolvable. It's an invitation to a journey of discernment and repentance and change and transformation that's supposed to take place gradually over the course of the next four weeks. And this holy dread is one of the many reasons why my wife and I have never inducted our kids into the Santa Claus lie. As fun as it is. As fun as it is. And just to be clear, I don't think that people that are doing the Santa Claus thing are like, that are ruining everything, or that they're horrible. I mean, they are sinners, but not because of that, right? <laughs> um, so I got no judgment for those folks. I enjoyed the Santa Claus thing when I was a kid. I thought it was great. I believe Santa Claus is way longer than everybody else did. Um, <clears throat> but this holy dread that characterizes, especially the beginning of the season of Advent, it's one of the reasons why, it's one of the many reasons why, Holly and I have never taught our kids the Santa Claus thing. Um, this holiness that's inspired by the second coming of Christ is a much deeper kind of holiness. And the stakes are much more serious than the good behavior that's supposed to be espoused by the coming of Santa Claus. Right? I mean, one of the things I don't like about the Santa Claus thing isn't just that it's a lie that we all agree we're going to tell kids, right? Which is enough reason in and of itself to be like, eh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, like, what kind of trust does that engender over time, you know? Um, yes, this thing that you were deeply attached to, and it was like viscerally connected to all these really important memories, we were lying to you, and it's not true. So it's not just that it's not true, though. It's actually that um, the thing I dislike about it is that there are certain kind of really dull but, but real similarities to... The, the, prep, the preparedness that we're supposed to have during the season of Advent, right? Santa Claus is coming to town, so be good, right? Um, Jesus is coming, 
Like the apocalypse is on the horizon. You don't know when, but it's going to happen. So now what? Are you tracking with me? But the holiness that's inspired by the coming of Jesus is much deeper, and the stakes are much more serious than the good behavior that's supposed to result from the fact that Santa, the lie, that Santa is coming to town. One way of specifying the difference between merely good behavior, kids trying to be good so they can get stuff, versus the coming of the Son of Man and what kind of sobriety that's supposed to engender in us. One way of specifying the difference is to think of it as the difference between individual, an individual kind of like, oh no, I better be good, versus a kind of political awakening or reckoning, or a personal attempt to be well-behaved versus uh, the end of a society, a society that's being brought to end, uh, brought to its end because of its evil. So the question we're faced with at Advent certainly is, it certainly does have to do with, with each of us specifically. What is it of which we need to repent? In what way do we need to live more deeply in accord with the coming of the Son of Man? And every one of us does have to answer that question ourselves. And yet we get to the answer to that question by embracing the sort of worldwide, the macro, the societal frame of the vision we receive in Scripture during the season of Advent. The question we're faced with is not just, are you being good or bad? Is your name on Santa's list or not? The question is, where are you living? How at home are you in the world as it already is? The world that is going to be dramatically different when Christ comes in final victory. How at home are you in the world as you already know it? Advent sheds light on Jesus' kingdom, not just... Um, on, on the individual, on us as individuals, but it sheds light on the societies that we inhabit. Or I guess in this room I could say this, the society singular that we inhabit. These visions of the end of the world as we know it invite us to sobriety about the corruption of our society. They invite us to become appalled at things we should always be appalled at, but that we've grown used to. To become appalled with violences that we've come to accept as if they were normal. And then to recognize tremblingly that there's no clean line to be drawn between ourselves and those violences and that corruption in our society. That we can't readily differentiate ourselves as participants and beneficiaries of the violence and corruption of the world that we are used to living in. The first place you could look to in our readings tonight to see this sort of larger societal frame of the vision of Advent, it occurs in Jesus' mention of the days of Noah in our reading from Matthew. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Um, so you might mistakenly think that Jesus has got some kind of beef. What, like, what's Jesus' problem with, with eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving into marriage? Like, since when were those things on the crack list, right? This is what the people were doing until the coming 
<laughs> so these things, I'll just say, are not intrinsically bad for a variety of reasons. We can say that they're not. Um, but in the context of what Jesus is saying, and the memory, the scriptural memory he's evoking, um, they're meant, those, those activities, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving into marriage, at an initial level, they're, they're meant to evoke in us a sense of complacency and obliviousness to what's coming down the pipe. It's meant to uh, help us envision and think about how we can live our lives as if time were a kind of closed loop that's basically predictable, where the future is basically imaginable depending upon what's happening now and what has happened in the past. Or living as if the world is a closed system. It's living in denial of the possibility of any interruption of time in the world from the outside. It's the denial or the willing ignorance of any divine rupture of the way things always are and the assumed predictability of the future. That's what's at stake in those words, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving into marriage. More deeply, these words connote, or perhaps I should say more simply, they, they connote a sense of pattern and of order. Um, they signify to us a society that's up and running. Um, presumably where there's, there's work and exchange for the goods of, of, the, of the things that nourish life, eating and drinking, right? Um, there's relationships in marriage, etc., right? So there's, this is a, a vision in a very simple sense of a settled way of life. Eating, drinking, marrying, and giving into marriage. And it's a way of life that's specified as the kind that took place in the days of Noah. Which is a time, the narrative of the book of Genesis makes clear, in which every human society, every human society in the earth was an anti-community devouring its own members. So I'm going to read you just a few excerpts from Genesis chapter 6. This is where Noah is introduced and the flood narrative begins. These are just some excerpts from Genesis chapter 6. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for them, for themselves, any that they wanted. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth and that every inclination of their hearts was on evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon earth. And God said to Noah, I determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So when Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage, he's not referencing just a discrete moment in history. He's referencing human society. Or I should say he's not, he's not only referencing a discrete moment in human history. He's referencing the way that human society, after the fall, that every settled way of life, that every human peoplehood has become predicated upon rapacious violence. Those are big words if you're in college. You should learn what they mean if you don't know. 
Every human society is predicated upon a rapacious violence. The end of the, of the Genesis narrative um, gives us no reason to, excuse me, of the, of the flood narrative in Genesis, gives us no reason to suspect that somehow society after the flood started being better than the violent human society that was so corrupt that the Lord decided to wipe it from the face of the earth. In fact, if anything, what happens is simply that God's disposition toward that violence becomes more long-suffering. But it's not that the violence of human order ceases, right? Violence is integral to human society, integral to human society, as we know it. Which is why the imagery of peace, the imagery of peace that so characterizes the scripture and the lyrics that we tend to encounter in the season of Advent, the imagery of peace is apocalyptic imagery. This week, in our reading from Isaiah, Isaiah is envisioning a day to come in which nations that were formerly divided against each other will make a pilgrimage to the mountain of the Lord's house where they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A time when people who were formerly enemies will gather together and become one people and they will take the, the instruments that they once used to make war against one another, to shed one another's blood, and they will destroy them and refashion them into tools that can be used to cultivate together a shared life, to grow food that can be shared together in this new peoplehood. This isn't, however, a kumbaya vision of everyone finally getting along. This vision of a, people, of a peaceful peoplehood, of a peaceable kingdom, it's one that by virtue of the fact that it is peaceful, necessarily means that it is a society, a kingdom that is built upon the ruins of the world as we know it. This vision of peace is an apocalyptic vision. It does not come to fruition without the destruction of everything that we now take for granted as normal. The people who are streaming to the mountain of the Lord's house in Isaiah chapter 2, they are coming there from the ashes of nations that no longer exist. So this is a vision that means the end of human history as we know it, which is to say a history where every human order is predicated upon a rapacious Violence. Think about this for a second. Can you imagine? There's this thing, hold on. There's this thing that, that is the United States of America. Alright? Yes, everyone agrees. There's such a thing as the United States of America. Can you imagine what sort of that thing, what sort of a thing it is, without telling the stories of the wars that we have fought and are fighting? If you had to tell the story of the United States of America outside of the history of its wars, what would there be left to tell? What story would you tell of the peoplehood of the United States of America? It's not limited to the United States of America, by the way. 
And that is the case for the vast majority, if not all, of the things that we think of as nation-states. What political party do you know of today that, that has, a, has a, a swords and spears to plowshares and pruning hooks policy? Do you know anyone in the election that we just had and in, and in the, the election that we're leading up to who as one of the main planks of their political platform that they're advocating the decommissioning of military technology. The, the, the dismantling of, of tanks and aircraft carriers and turning those things into something that could be used maybe for small-scale farming. What nation do you know of that could think of itself outside of its identity, outside of its, of its technologies of violence? What nation does not conceive of itself and its nationhood as being essentially a division, as being an us versus them, as being a here's where our territory ends and yours begins? What nation do you know of that doesn't conceive of itself essentially as a division over against all others in the world? Of this people, this land, over against and protected from those people and that land. But Isaiah is envisioning a people whose life is not defined over against the lives of other people. He's envisioning the utter destruction of all the artifacts that are utterly essential for our sense of nationhood and peoplehood. All the artifacts of violence and division. Um, I didn't take Greek, I mean, I took Greek, I didn't take Hebrew in divinity school, but um, I did do a paper on uh, this passage. And so I can tell you that this word, when they say they will beat, um, that word, with very few exceptions, in the canon of scripture, um, means to destroy without repair, to destroy beyond repair. And so what's odd is that here it means the utter destruction, you can't get the thing back ever again, and yet it also sits alongside this refashioning of, of other things. Isaiah envisions pulverizing the mechanisms of violence. He says they won't learn war anymore. They won't learn war anymore. Never again. I don't know about you. I mean, who as a, as a little boy or girl was kind of obsessed with the Navy SEALs? Anyone? And still, it's like, occasionally might listen to a podcast about the Navy SEALs. <laughs> okay. Because of a lot of things, but because they're awesome, and partly because your sense of the school of war, that they represent the kind of the pinnacle of the school of war, and our sense of nationhood is tied to that. Isaiah says, we won't learn war anymore. We won't learn war anymore. We'll forget how to do the thing called war. Never again. 
So swords and spears, the violence of the days of Noah, the violence of the world as we know it, will come to an end. But we need to go on to recognize that, that this violence of the days of Noah, um, scripturally speaking, like within the canon as a whole, it means something more than just or merely like actual warfare. It points further to the violence, the more subtle violence, but the no less real violence, of wealth and of poverty. And the way that, that wealth is acquired, at the same time the poverty is produced. Tonight's reading from Isaiah, this vision of peace, it comes from chapter 2 of Isaiah. Toward the latter half of chapter 2 of Isaiah, or chapter 1 of Isaiah, so right before tonight's reading, um, we read this. How the faithful city has become a whore. She that was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bride and runs after gifts. They do not defend the orphan. And the widow's cause does not come before them. So the vision of peace, and at the end of violence that we get in Isaiah chapter 2 that we read tonight, it comes just after this rebuke of a society that is built upon injustice, an economic injustice, in which people who are vulnerable, orphans and widows, people without means, are marginalized and forgotten, and where people who are in a position to get as much as they can, to profit from bribes or gifts, that they, do, they get as much of it as they can. Now, the very same vision of peace I know at least one person in this room knows, knows this. The very same vision of peace that we read tonight occurs verbatim in one other Old Testament book. Like, it, okay, here's one person who knows. Raise your hand if anyone else knows. Really? Okay, I won't tell you who I thought knew. You know? What was your name, Jolie? What book was it? Do you know? Okay, give, give it a shot. No one's gonna. No one's going to laugh at you if not, because they they're not even risking raising their hand. So. <laughs> what book is it? Can you give me the Testament first? It's the old one. It's the one we call the Old Testament. Okay, then I'm going to say that it is Deuteronomy. Uh, no, but thank you for playing nonetheless. That's good. <laughs> okay, Laura? Micah. It's Micah, yes. So this same vision of swords... And spears to plowshares and grain hooks. It occurs verbatim in the fourth chapter of the book of Micah. This very same vision of peace. Interesting. There would be a direct quote. Two places in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. And people argue about who wrote it first. Like who was copying who or whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, in the word of God, this same vision occurs twice. Um, the book of Micah begins by, by pointing to the cities. Um, these, these powerful places of centralized authority and economic productivity that Israel's cities, he points to them as the locus of sin in the, among the people of God and as symbols of injustice. Um, it says like in chapter 1 of Micah. We get to chapter 3 of Micah, just before the plowshares and pruning hooks passage. Um, and we hear Micah say this. Um, I said, listen, you heads of Jacob. So he's talking about sort of the, the rulers of certain 
tribes of the people, you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, you who tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin off them, break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a kettle, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them in that time because they have acted wickedly. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. So what Micah, Micah himself is a prophet, but what he means by prophets are, are poser prophets when he says this, right? And they also, they sit in these privileged places in the sort of societal structure um, of these cities. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace, when they have something to eat. But they declare war against those who have nothing to put into their mouths. So the imagery of violence and of war here, this is right before Micah goes on to say, one day, the mountain of the Lord's house, people are going to come, swords to plowshares, spears of printing hooks. The imagery of violence and of war in the prophetic literature, as well as in so many other places in Scripture, is applied, it comes to include not just out-and-out warfare, but the economic violence of class inequality, the exploitation of people for profit who can be exploited, the violence of having something to eat when your neighbor does not. So we live in a world that can be described under the heading, figuratively, of the days of Noah. We still live in that world. We live in a place where technologies and practices and patterns of division, of, ex- of, of exploitation, of hostility, of nation against, na- against nation, and neighbor against neighbor, where these patterns are so ubiquitous and accepted that we treat them as if they were original to creation. We take them for granted. We accept them without ever questioning whether or not God accepts them. And Advent is meant to raise the question of whether or not we ought to accept them. Because Advent asks us to envision the end of the days of Noah. And so as I said at the beginning, this is a season, these are readings that are meant to, to engender holy dread. They are, they are supposed to unsettle us and to make us uncomfortable. And so I want to try with a couple of stories to point, to try to articulate what I mean, or to just give you some kind of artifacts of discomfort. That's the kind of discomfort and unsettledness that I'm talking about. As I think the vast majority of you know, um, I'm an avid bow hunter. I get it to be a pretty decent one this year, if I do say so myself. And uh, so I killed, I recently, I, I killed this doe. It was my first, my first year on public land, which is a really big achievement. And um, this buddy of mine that helped me drag it out of the woods uh, told me that I should get it processed at this place in Shudrant, which was great because I live in Shudrant. I didn't know that we had to get it processed at this place in Shudrant. So I took the deer home, quartered it up, and the next day I took it in a nice chest to, to get it, you know, vacuum sealed so that I can eat it over the course of the next however long. And uh, so I dropped it off and 
I came back like a week or two later after they had, they were like, hey, come pay us $50 and get your deer. Um, so I walk in with my cooler, now into the front of the building, and um, I walk in, and they have the cash register in the same room where they're doing all, where they're making the sausage, literally, right? Like, where all, all the butchering is actually taking place, which, which that in and of itself doesn't hurt my feelings a bit, right? Like, I killed this animal and have already started butchering it myself, so I'm not offended by the fact that the butchering is going on, right? But what struck me immediately as I walked through the door um, is there's maybe a dozen people that are doing this rather thankless, in some ways dangerous, work of, of butchering up mine and who knows who else's deer. And they are all folks that I feel like I wouldn't have seen if I hadn't walked in there that day. There are folks that are my neighbors, literally they live in the same town as me, but I can tell that the vast majority of them, if not every one of them, comes from somewhere in the part of the world that we would call Latin America. And uh, the few of them speak English, and I thought, huh, like, where do these folks, like, where are these folks the rest of my life? And my, in my, in a life that I'm living in Chudrin and in Ruston, who are here so diligently packaging away this venison. Um, where are they living? I started to ask. And, and then I remembered the, the couple of rundown, what looked like abandoned trailers that I saw on the way into the place and thought, you know, based on my past, uh, like a place I used to live by a bunch of, of farmers that relied on, on immigrant workers to come and harvest their crops every year who sort of partition those people off into these horrific uh, living quarters for the short span of time that they were there doing the work. I was like, yeah, that's probably where these people are living, is in these like basically bombed out shells of trailers. Um, and it was an important moment for me for a few reasons. Um, firstly, because it's easy when, you, when you're at the Wesley Foundation or when you're in college and you start talking about the violence, the economic injustice of society, it's easy if you are from a certain political background or you're recently bandwagoning on a certain stripe of the political spectrum to be like, well, that's not my problem because I'm not one of the people that's chanting for us to build the wall. All right? I... Not only do I say the Pledge of Allegiance, I also don't vote, right? But if I did vote, I wouldn't vote for folks who are proposing that we build the wall. The wall is not a thing I'm excited about. The wall seems to me, Christians excited about the wall, seems to me to be something that is an egregious betrayal of the Christian faith. Uh, the excitement about that seems to be an egregious betrayal of the Christian faith. So that's not one of my shticks. And so it would be easy for me to think that the exploitation of my Latin American neighbors is something that doesn't soil me, right? Because I, I don't have those ideals, or whatever you would call them. And yet here I am at this deer processing place in Shudran, discovering that I am very much a part of the landscape of ambivalence and the landscape of exploitation of these neighbors of ours. I gotta tell you, $50 to get a whole deer process is cut rate. And it never occurred to me before 
I mean, if I, just quartering a deer takes me like a while, a couple of hours, right? Much less like packaging the whole thing. $50 is, is cheap to have that done. It never occurred to me the reason that that is as cheap as it is is likely to be that the people that are doing the work are folks who are not in a position, and I don't know this for a fact, but it seems likely to me that they're not in a position to demand a fair wage for the work that they're doing. So there was this discovery, this reminder, first of all, that, that what I think about stuff, what I say about things, my convictions in a vacuum, they don't get me off the hook. Just because I'm not for the wall doesn't mean that I'm not in some way implicated in this economic violence toward my neighbors. And so again, it invoked that question for me, where am I? In light of the coming of Jesus, a Messiah and a Savior that's coming not from the central places of power, but from the backwater of Bethlehem. Where am I in that story? And am I where I thought I was? How at home am I in this economy where it seems that there's no way to prosper or even to carry out daily life without somehow doing so at the expense of my neighbor? Here's another story. Raise your hand if you went on the, um, on the trip, the, the mission stay thing um, over the course of this, this last break. Okay, cool. How many total people were a part of it? So there are 20-ish folks um, from here and around here. Um, a number of our community, over the first few days of Thanksgiving break, um, they had an opportunity to behold some of the contemporary artifacts of division and the technologies of economic violence in our society over the, over the course of the few, first few days of Thanksgiving break. Um, the goal of this, of this trip was to to begin to become present with, to begin to become awake to um, some of our, our immigrant neighbors in and around Ruston and North Louisiana. And so half of our group spent a couple of days visiting uh, a prison. Was it over for Vrabel? Where was it? Winfield. I'm sorry, what? Winfield. Winfield. Um, this is a private prison where... Uh, Immigrants who have been detained are being imprisoned. Um, this is this, it was all men's prison, right? Are all men's detainees? Yeah. Um, if you didn't go on that trip, you should listen to some of the stories and, and the details of those stories about the mechanisms of security, the architecture of the place, um, the habits of of relating that were discouraged. And in each of those things, you will have detailed for you some of the spears and swords of the day that we find ourselves living in. Um, another portion of our group visited uh, what essentially amounted to a trailer park, right? Um, here in Ruston, within the city limits, right? Um, and visited, how many families? I know we visited one specific. What was the lady's name? Adriana. Huh? Adriana. Adriana. Wasn't there another one too? Yeah, I went to see it. It was Adriana the one that had like the five kids? She had two kids. 
Three kids? Okay. Um, which of the two houses was the one where she said, where she talked about the fact that she was thankful for what God provided for her? Okay. So the interns the other day were relating to me stories about work that they did, getting to know um, Adriana and her family, and, and being welcomed into her house. Um, and hearing some of her story. And they were struck, they were inescapably struck by and relayed to me um, the artifacts of poverty um, in, the, in this dwelling. Um, just, just how very obviously, obvious it was that this person and her family doesn't have everything that we take for granted is what we need in order to flourish. Um, and yet, in the midst of that, probably one of the moments in the story that I was most struck by was that she, she pointed to all of that and said that she knows that God is going to take care of her because in, in this place, that most of us would probably consider a hovel, she recognizes that the Lord has provided for her. Is that accurate to the story? For those that were there? Yeah. Um, and as I listened to some of those details, I felt the dreadful but holy questions of Advent stirring within me. Um, I felt a sense of dread at the disparity between what she takes for granted as, as the Lord's provision and what I take for granted as the Lord's provision. And a sense of dread at my uncertainty as to in what way all the ways that I'm comfortable being 